0: This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. The Secret Library podcast is brought to you by listeners like you from The Secret Library podcast Patreon. You can check it out and support the show at patreon.com slash secretlibrary. This is episode 119 of the Secret Library podcast. I'm very, very excited to be back after a little hiatus of releasing new episodes. My guest today is Simon Van Bui. He is the author of The Secret Lives of People in Love, Love Begins in Winter, which won the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award. Everything Beautiful Began After, The Illusion of Separateness, which was a national bestseller, and Tales of Accidental Genius. His latest book out now is The Sadness of Beautiful Things, a short story collection. He's the editor of three philosophy books, and his essays have appeared in The New York Times, The Financial Times, The Guardian, and El Men China, where he writes the monthly New Yorker column. He's written for The Stage, National Public Radio, and the BBC. He teaches part-time at the School of Visual Arts in Manhattan, and frequently hosts creative writing courses. And in 2013, he founded Writers for Children, a project which helps young people build confidence in their literary abilities through annual writing awards. His fiction has been translated into 17 languages, and he lives in Williamsburg, Brooklyn with his wife and daughter. I really, really, really love talking to Simon. I felt um, he had a lot of common references. I studied art history, so it was really lovely to dive into some other influences and how they have an impact on our writing. And I just really adored this short story collection so much. There's so much in it. There's a variety of experiences of characters. Um, There's even some genre bending, which I really enjoyed. So we talk about what makes a story exciting to write this short story collection, which is really wonderful, as well as the process of writing as a whole. Um, I've been waiting, waiting to release this because we recorded it um, about six weeks ago, I would say, uh, maybe even longer than that, actually, now that it's coming out. but. I was absolutely delighted with this conversation and know you will be too. So I'm very excited to introduce Simon Van Bui. Hi, Simon. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Hi, Caroline. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm good. I am so excited to talk about your book because the idea of gathering stories that have been heard over a period of time and then transforming them into short stories was so delightful to me. And at the same time, I thought, wow, why has no one done this? So I wanted to know how you got the idea at first, because you collected them over about 10 years. Am I right?
1: Yeah, that's correct. Yeah.
0: So did you know when you heard the first one that you might be onto something or, or was it sort of as you continued that you thought, Oh, maybe I should put these all together.
1: Uh, Well, half of the stories in the collection I'd heard, um, you know, maybe about 10 years ago. And uh, I didn't really, I didn't have the skill to put them into a a short story. I mean, um, I was told the, uh, some of the stories I was told, you know, by Crackling Fire with a dog on my lap. I mean, it really was that sort of traditional where I was in somebody's house in Ireland. And, um, but, you know, I tried and tried in the months following to, to, crafted into something, but I didn't know how to um, handle time or or um, there was something wrong with, there was too much of a secondary character. So technically, I just didn't have the skills and I, I sort of kept them in the back of my mind. And I would tell people the stories orally, but um, I just couldn't get them down on paper in a way that really worked. So um, I think probably accidentally, I read my way into understanding how to to draft the format of certain stories. Um, And then other stories, not dying is probably the hardest story I've ever written. Mm.
0: Um,
1: And uh, I had the idea for that uh, probably seven or eight years ago, where I rented a house in... I have some relatives, children, who didn't really leave uh, New York very much, the city. So um, I thought, well, shouldn't I should rent a, a house in the middle of nowhere, like an old farmhouse, and drive them up there for this sounds creepy, doesn't it? Like it's like a <laughs> like it's a murder film. And never so
0: bring them home.
1: <laughs> yeah, but... hide them in the chimney. Yeah,
0: Actually, exactly. that sounds
1: horrific. But um, so there's uh, probably a murderer listening, yank saying, "Yeah, that's absolutely that's like that's the perfect weekend." Um, so uh, I uh, rented a house in upstate New York, and uh, I drove them up. And I think they were they were. Um, seven years old and 10 years old and then my own daughter was about six so we drove up and i my brother who's a scientist had sent me this rocket this um 12 foot uh rocket that you build and then you fire it by pumping seven or eight gallons of water into some kind of tank and then you release it and the rocket apparently goes hundreds and hundreds of feet into the air and it's amazing and I think um, we had one of these when I
0: was a kid it was amazing
1: yeah anyway so I I thought well great this is a great opportunity for us to uh, launch the rocket and so I stopped at a Walmart or some other you know shop that's also a village and uh, I bought orange hats and orange vests uh, so that we would go out to the field and we'd all be visible and uh, apart from the wind blowing the rocket as I was pumping the water into the thing and it almost decapitating, like, one of the children. Oh, which no. Which, of course, yeah, you know, because as it was about to launch, the wind blew the rocket sideways. So it was like looking, it was pointing at, like, poor Timmy, who was just, you know, jumping up and down, waiting for his rocket to explode. And um, thankfully, though, um, I managed to, uh, to straighten the rocket. But they all went to bed early that night, which is quite a... a you know, an achievement if you've ever had experience of children. And I think... It so must by, have been
0: the excitement of the rocket.
1: Yes, they were all fast asleep by 2 a.m. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> they were uh, they were in bed by about, um, you know, 10 o'clock at night. And so I'm in the middle of... I'm in this farmhouse with um, a roaring fire and, uh, and they're up, upstairs. And I'm bored because there's no internet, there's no cell reception, there's no TV. And, um, you know, that was when... Computers didn't have I didn't have a DVD play or anything, so I really had to do that strange thing where I have sort of have to think and reflect on my life and and um so I'm sitting there you know in front of the fire, and I think, Jesus, imagine if i did was able to get cell phone reception and I caught some kind of breaking news that um the end of the world is is coming we've got six more hours to live, meaning um you know that there's some kind of cosmic event where the earth is going to be sucked up into the sun and you know it will be all be dead in 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 milliseconds so then if we are three four hours drive from new york city uh should i try driving into new york if we've got six hours to live and they're upstairs asleep and if i did i'd probably get stuck in traffic i mean even the end of the world wouldn't affect new york city traffic and um, probably not and so should i do that or or should i wake them up and tell them oh guys i've got some you know i've got some um Rather interesting news. We're all going to die. Uh, I mean, you know, not in decades as we as we had hoped, but actually quite soon before breakfast. And um, or should I let them sleep? Or should I kill them? Should I suffocate them with pillows before they sort of burn alive in panic and fear? So uh, I, I thought this, you know, I, I, I did, obviously didn't tell them this uh, the <laughs> next day. But I, I thought I it... You
0: never believe what I was thinking about last night you
1: are yeah but I, but I thought it'd be quite good as a, a story um you know what what would you do what so i stayed up for a few hours thinking well what what would i do you know and uh, and then um of course i didn't know how to turn it into any kind of whether it should be a film or whether it should be a play whether it should be a short story and uh, four years later i drove back up to the same house i rented it with a friend of mine and um we went up there for the weekend and I walked around in the, in, the, in the snow as the character does in the book. And I hiked up into the mountain about 2 a.m. Um, with ropes and things like that. And, uh, and uh, I lit the fire and I did everything the character does in the book. So my friend went to bed early and uh, I stayed up all night going through what the character does in the book, making you know, looking at the farmhouse in that context. <clears throat> I still couldn't write it into anything. Uh, And then um, I was listening to Fugues by Bach, which are really, really strange things. It's like the same melody, but played all these different times and then sort of layered over itself. I'm not sure I completely understand, but I think that's sort of the general gist of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what I thought was I would, that's it. That's what I'll do for the story. I will layer this story as a fugue. So we'll have the, it's the theme of, I suppose, loss, which we're all going to have to deal with you know, if we want to be happy, to confront it instead of sort of deny it, sweep it under the rug. And, and um, so it goes back, I suppose, to the Buddhist idea of attachment, um, you know, where we suffer because we get attached, but the nature of life is change. So um, I, I laid it down as a fugue, listening to to the Bach's fugues, and, uh, and that's the format the story is in in the book, not dying. And a friend of mine who was on the verge of, of dementia, uh in her eighties very depressed uh, you know she wanted to commit suicide uh, it was a very sad situation but eventually she died a few months ago and I, I don't know if any of your listeners have ever had the experience of when someone dies you actually feel relief and guilt of course yes. for feeling relief but oh
0: well because yeah no i my grandmother had dementia and yes i understand the the tension exactly
1: so so i'm sorry to hear that about your grandmother
0: uh, thank you
1: and uh, I, I went to. Uh, it doesn't, you know, even when they they get sick, it doesn't erase all the brilliant memories. Like, you know, a few years or a few months of suffering doesn't, or 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 or, or, um, or not or forgetting doesn't erase all that those wonderful moments you had with her. Absolutely. Um, but um, anyway, well, so uh, I went to see her, and uh, I said, "So how's life? What are you doing?" And she said. I said, tell me everything you're doing. And she said, well, I can sum it up in two words. I'm not dying. And um, mm. so I thought, well, that's a good title for a story. Thank <laughs> um, you for that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, uh, so that, that's how I got that title. And, um, and so that's sort of the, the, the true event of being in that, that house and then layering it like a fugue. And then the, um, the, the thing about the man who at the beginning in Kentucky uh, he told me, um, a strange story. Um, I, I think I should probably let you talk. I, I, I think, if, <laughs> I think probably I feel like someone's giving me an annoying look, like I'm going on too much. So I'm just going to stop Definitely there and not. see if you have any questions.
0: Well, I think I, for one thing, absolutely not. No one is giving you an annoyed look. I can, I can guarantee that, but I'm, I'm interested in. Where the line is between the point where someone told you the story and then you you leapt off into your own process, and and what you what kind of loyalty you felt, you know, hearing these stories from people, and where it went into another direction. I mean, the one that I'm thinking of in particular is probably, unless I have missed out on some major scientific developments that have happened in the last few years. In playing with dolls, I'm assuming the direction the story went in is is not currently possible, but that there was something about the story at the beginning that you heard. But correct me if I'm wrong. And this whole thing is happening, and I had no idea.
1: No, it's uh, it, it, it's not happening. Um, For uh, anyone listening, listening, the story
0: there is, <laughs> there is a. Um, a family that loses a daughter and then there is a virtual replacement which is inserted into the situation. I won't say more about the specifics, but um it did have a bit it was it was an interesting genre cross into a sort of a sci-fi element.
1: Yeah, that there, there's um which one reviewer said, how can this be based on a true story if it's a sci-fi? <laughs> I and I thought "Good like, like, oh, critics I are so. Dying literal. For it to yeah, be. yeah, yeah. Um well actually uh we can we well I, I look, you know, you look in your junk folder in, mm-hmm. in, in your email and, you know, it says like, you know, carne, 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 like, you know, some, you know, so like there's a Spanish one. I, I get a lot of Spanish uh, junk email because I think I signed up for People magazine for my daughter who's obsessed with gossip, but I accidentally put People en Español. So now I get all this junk mail in Spanish, That's uh, which amazing. is, yeah, which is quite wonderful. And then I'll get, you know, I'll get, um, I'll get, Simon, are you happy with your breast size? And uh, and I've not thought about it Yeah, it's true. I haven't thought about it. But now I have. I'm not sure I am satisfied. And then I'll get something else saying, like, meet Russian ladies now. And I'll think, oh. And then I'll get, you know, meet Singaporean ladies tomorrow. It's like there's a lot of... uh, you know, um, and then it's like Simon. I've got seven hundred million euro, but I need you to send me twenty euro in order for me to process it, and then I'll give you a reward. Um, and those things are not true, by the way. Don't click on them. Oh. No. Um, and then I I got one that said, um, I got one that said, you know, are you happy with your love doll? And I thought, hmm. Well, a I don't have a love doll. I have a teddy bear jig that I'm celebrating forty years of of you know mm. companionship with, and. Um, but I don't have a love doll, and then I actually did. Can I say this It's just you and me, though, isn't it? So I, I clicked on it, <laughs> and I I realized that this person, you did. this love doll business is in, is really quite a burgeoning um a burgeoning uh, sort of you uh, know industry where you know people who I suppose I mean I I don't judge because you know loneliness is one of the hardest things to cope with, and and you can live around people and still be lonely, and so I suppose these these um, dolls that are manufactured mostly in California. They sort of look real, and they some of them blink, and, and now they're developing dolls that, you know, can actually move and things like that. And so this is, in the future, probably, that people will have companions that are dolls, but, you know, they're sort of... Um, you know, they, they won't argue with you. They, they, well, maybe they will. Maybe my will Maybe doll they'll a question, aren't
0: you? The yeah. arguing and model.
1: And, and, and point out your faults, you know? And so people who are um, masochists can get these dolls. <laughs> um,
0: I, I wouldn't be surprised.
1: And uh, can you imagine people, like, running down the street from their dolls? <laughs> <laughs> she's,
0: really, she's really in a mood today.
1: <laughs> or people dumping their dolls, like, you know, in back alleys and then driving away. <laughs>
0: Oh yeah, they can live out all different kinds different of different fantasies. Movies. What makes uh, me think? Have you, have you seen the film <laughs> *Lars and the, Lars Real, and the Girl? Real Girl*?
1: I loved that film. I loved it so much. Um, so um, uh, apparently, there's like a, a, a soldier doll, like a, a U.S. Marine doll, and that doll is popular with apparently like um, single and married women in mostly Republican states, according to the um, of course the, the Love Doll manufacturer. So. Um, um, I thought that uh, you know, imagine if we could get a replacement doll for people we love, and then you could download their personality into the doll. So, you know, you know, the, you, the way your brain fires, that would be recorded and downloaded. So then the doll would know how to respond. It just wouldn't be able to learn any new information and assimilate it. Do you see? So the doll would be would be at, would be at the age the person we love died. So this is about a couple who are trying to reconcile the death of their daughter while she's right there. But it's not her. But this is the thing is the doll doesn't realize that she's a doll. Of course not. And and that's that's the crux of of, of the story is, um, you know, where does human rights? I mean, if we go into space. Who, who's there to enforce human rights violations because it's there's no law in space apparently so it's the same with artificial intelligence who can enforce human rights if for non-human intelligence and I think this is something our grandchildren and great-grandchildren are going to have to come to terms with and there's going to be people who do not care about non-artificial life forms but you know arguably if they don't feel, do they, I mean, if they do feel, does that, so it's a really gray area that I wanted to explore.
0: Amazing. Yeah. It was, it was so fascinating reading that and thinking, you know, nobody ever thinks about, you know, young people who die, you know, it's like, it's a, there's a thought of like partners or so on. Um, that people worry about in these contexts, but to think about a child, which is the most you know, heartbreaking of all because you don't expect that to happen. You don't expect a child to go first.
1: Yeah, that's that's probably the worst thing that can ever happen to, to a family, I think, I mean, the hardest thing. Um, I mean, because we're, we're not in control, and people are in control, if they mess up their lives with infidelity or gambling or alcoholism, you know, it, to some extent, we all have the power to try and undo the, things that have happened to us so that we don't repeat the same mistakes but when a child dies the, the hardest thing I think is dealing with the fact that if you'd left the house at a different time or if if the weather was different you know it, it might not have happened that the idea that and then you think well god our lives are just chance, aren't they you know if it wasn't a certain temperature in the back seat of that Camaro there'd be no Simon you know right. um, so it's like it takes us into this gray area where Oh, my God. Then if we go back in time by accident and we're like, Jesus, I'm like five, six, seven years before my actual life that I was a few minutes ago. And then like, well, my child hasn't been born yet, so I should find the person I'm going to have the child with and then have sex with them to bring them back into the world. But I think according to scientists, if you have sex at a different time or if you're in a different position or if the body temperature is different, it could be a different child. So then where's my child? From right. like, so then what does that mean? It means that I suppose every child could be your child. Every person could be your, your, your mother or father. And, and then that, that takes me into the idea that you can't love one person. If you want to love one person, you've got to love everybody. Otherwise, it's inauthentic from, from the point of view of logic.
0: Absolutely. That's fascinating.
1: Uh, It's hard to love people because, you know, people are difficult and people demand more love than they could possibly ever get usually. It's hard. We're so neurotic, but we also have so many wonderful things about us.
0: I think that's something that I love throughout the, the whole collection of stories is that people are, well, they're presented with these sort of heartbreaking or challenging or difficult situations but most of them leave you feeling more hopeful about humanity in the end rather than less i think they're all trying to do the right right. thing
1: god that's a really nice thing that you could say because um a lot of people have criticized me for many things which are always usually true but um (laughs) when it comes to my work um i've been criticized for having like what are called you know hopeful optimistic endings um as opposed to well i think what's fas- what's been fashionable is sort of like you know people who were very powerful and handsome you know suddenly like becoming corrupt and uh, that's sort of aftermath of the 80s when all the films showed us basically a, a world an america which we, we might be leaning toward but um leaning is different from heading toward i think and um anyway uh, but my endings are usually hopeful because I start off in the shit. I start off in the rut, right. And then because that's, I feel like, how we are. That's how we are. I mean, I don't know anybody who has, like, an amazing life and there's nothing that's going wrong and, and they don't really... If they are, they're, it's in the mail. You know, it's coming. But a lot of the people I know, they're anchored to some past event which kind of controls how they see things now. You know, maybe they pound drinks because of something that happened to them as a child or... So it's like Grendel and Grendel's mother from Beowulf. You can defeat Grendel, but what about Grendel's mom? (laughs) You know, you you can stop drinking, but what was it that was making you do it in the first place? And so I, I prefer to, I suppose unconsciously, to start my stories off in the worst possible situation. And then, as I've tried to do myself, how do we get out of this pit? So my stories, in a way, I wanted to be kind of maps the people who were in these prisons, like I was and am sometimes, you know, and we ha- there's no lock, there's no guard, but we we're in these prisons and we don't know how to get out because Lord knows we're not taught it in school. You know, we're taught how to cook an egg or like how to, you know, measure it. A, a really? We didn't
0: get taught how to cook an egg. You guys are waiting us.
1: Oh, home ec was my favorite class. No, um, it's amazing. We didn't
0: have it anymore. They were like, oh, we're past that.
1: Oh, that's terrible. And I don't think we are. Eggs are very difficult to cook well. They are. Um, so really, that's it. So I'm different than a lot of my contemporaries who are excellent writers, of course. Whereas I start off in terrible circumstances and work my way out, as opposed to starting off in um, fortuitous good circumstances and then going down into, and then ending it with like, life is meaningless. Life is meaningless. And that's why it's meaningful because it doesn't mean anything. We're a blip in the universe. Yet here we are, Caroline chatting, having fun, like laughing. I'm drinking tea. I have a cookie on the horizon. You know, it's. That's
0: always a good place to be.
1: Yeah. 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 And there's a dog outside. And so um, if we, that, it's the everyday things I feel like that, you know, like, why does life have to have meaning for us to be happy?
0: I think that there's something that I have heard, and I believe this, but I'm disappointed that I believe it, which
1: is,
0: (laughs) you know, those moments where people have said that readers will believe coincidences if they lead towards something negative, but they have a harder time accepting coincidences in fiction if it leads to something positive.
1: Yeah, that's that's very interesting. You know, I, I think that might go back to what Joseph Campbell and, you know, talked about in his in his myth- mythological texts. And, uh, and, of course, George Eliot, I think, in um, her novel Silas Marner, she says that people prefer to, um, people, if they feel like if they obsessively worry or have anxiety about something or they expect negative consequences, it's less likely to make it happen because they're expecting it. So it's a part of the human psyche where we almost, you know, prepare ourselves for it. Hoping because if it's I suppose it's like uh, it, it, the Greek idea of of of, of uh, where you know if we you know the the idea of tragedy where you know you fall from a height you know so I suppose the British have perfected this where <laughs> they just imagine very it's a very it's sort of like the art of pessimism where the right. more you the more you worry that something's going to go wrong the less likely it is to actually happen to you whereas it's the people who like go about innocently like characters in Bruegel's paintings, you know, where over the horizon there's some terrible th- inferno waiting to engulf them. Right, um, right. But to me, I realize, as, a, as looking at it scientifically, inspired by Stephen Hawking, it doesn't matter. I mean, because what I think, I mean, and this is, this is where we get into difficult territory, because my daughter, when she was five, said, Dad, if I pray for things, does that make them more likely to happen? And I said, well, I mean, that's the idea and uh, you know this sort of silent That's wishing a tough we question. do it's tough and then she said uh, but what if i pray for negative things i mean is prayer like equal opportunity like is is prayer only valid if it's if if it's what we would consider to be morally sound and and if so then how does the science work how can prayer be 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 tangible if it only works in one direction you know, because then that would imply that. Do you see? So it's a very, very difficult. But then I, I pray. I don't know who I'm praying to or what, but it feels like I'm doing something, and uh, I'm not ashamed to admit that. You know, um, I don't have anyone or anything in mind, but it feels good and it feels sincere and authentic and it feels engaging. Uh, prayer does. Uh, but you know, as a, as a, as an atheist, I don't know who I'm doing it to. Um, it and it's I like think voting, voting. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, um, but I'd I think like to we're...
0: put a point in favor of this outcome, please.
1: <laughs> um, I mean, Karl Marx said in his, you know, when he wasn't thinking about like, you know, um, money, he was actually a very wealthy guy, which is shocking. He, the guy who came up with, you know, Marx, Karl Marx, the German ideology, mm-hmm. Communist Manifesto, has actually ended his life in a really bourgeois. Um, Situation, But uh, anyway, he, he believed that there was this sort of web of consciousness. And, and of course, then the American writer Emerson said that there's an oversoul. And I certainly think that we're all connected. I mean, we have to be. Um, one of the questions, I think, to get into Oxford University, uh, you know, often, you know, a lot of good universities don't look at test scores. They want to meet you, and they ask themselves, this is, is this somebody I want to teach? And one of the questions, I think, from the math department is... Um, is uh uh if if uh, if how many grandparents do you have uh four how many grandparents did your parents have well they each had four so if you think about how many grandparents everyone you know had and then you, you you and then you think about that for the population now how much how many grandparents i mean biological grandparents does every person living now have and um and then you may do that that sum get that figure and then you ask yourself well those people then how many of those grandparents had grandparents. And then what happens is, as we do the math, we, we, we it looks strange because there's less people in the past. I think 60 years ago, there were three and a half billion, not seven billion like there is today. And uh, and then so, but if there's less people, then if everybody had more grandparents, the math tells us that there's more people in the past. So then it's a question, not just of math, but of logic. So I think students, it took me a long time to get this, I wouldn't have got in. But, um, <laughs> but the, uh, the answer took me several months thinking about this. But the answer is, of course, that we're all related. Yes. Um, or that, we, or that we,
0: share. we share more than one person can have the same set of grandparents.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so if you go farther and farther and farther back, when there's less and less and less and less, and less people, we really are actually related. Um, and so the idea of, of the, you know, the Buddhist idea that we're here to overcome the illusion of our separateness. That's actually an idea that can be proven through math and logic, which I think is excellent. You know, one nil to like math and logic. Um, Yes, exactly.
0: I think that's something that is, I mean, that's something that I love about stories is that you can take these concepts, but make them something that you can actually get your mind around. Like I'm thinking of um, The Doorman, a little bit as you're talking about that the last story in the collection that there is this overlap between people and that people are playing different roles simultaneously somebody can be a doorman but also a really important figure in music at the same time but people don't see people as having this overlap in their identity when we're out going about our day-to-day lives and I think I think that's something really fascinating to consider, and it was something that I think also went through the collection. Was you see people in one light, but then you you change how you see them. The same with the pigeon about the boxer who decides to see an assailant in a different light than he presents himself at first.
1: Yeah, that really that that that's a almost that's very close to a true story. The story of the the boxer. oh really yeah I mean it I wondered when... about that
0: one. This is about um, somebody who was mugged. In New York, and then handles it very differently than I think many of us would have handled it.:
1: Yeah, he does. He handles it in a way that makes him, I suppose, in Asian philosophy, a deeply wise, sentient being. Uh, and uh, you know and he's only a 17 year old you know um, kid from the Bronx who didn't even finish high school. He, he has this emotional intelligence that he's got from his deep relationship with his mother. Well, he's able to deal with conflict in a way that most of us couldn't even imagine. You know, he's—he uh, is the making. I mean, he is no—it's no coincidence. I think that he's also a boxer. He's training to be a professional boxer because, in the tradition of the samurai master, he embodies that stoicism.
0: So, how did you? Who did you hear this story from? Metro and,
1: New York on the subway, Caroline. Oh my
0: God! Okay, so how are you getting people to talk to you and tell you these stories? Because as someone who's relatively introverted. If I'm on a subway somewhere, I'm very likely to be sort of the jerk (laughs) who's reading a book and not like, hey, tell me your story. And when I do get a story, it's somebody like in grad school going on the BART from the East Bay into San Francisco. This woman spent 45 minutes telling me whether or not she should return a shirt she had bought because she just wasn't sure it was right for her. So I'm unlikely to turn that into a short story, although now I may be thinking I should. How How is this happening? I'm very curious
1: about this. Um, that's a very good question. Well, first of all, being British in in Kentucky and Texas and North Dakota, people don't really have a frame of reference. And therefore, they don't really feel like I'm judging them. So people will... Like so they I, fling I, I,
0: themselves at you.
1: In a way. I mean, I took a Greyhound bus across America. And, uh, you know, I met gamblers and I met drug dealers. And I met people on the run from, from the law. I met... Um, I met a lot. I met a lot of Native Americans, especially in the Oklahoma area, and um, and the thing is, you know, you get chatting to someone, and uh, if they feel safe with you, uh, and I'm I'm the epitome of safety because I'm a father, I'm a dad, you know, and dads have this sort of unspoken bond with each other too, um, so because you put someone else's life and a husband too, but you put someone else's life before your own, so I think that m- makes you sort of trustworthy in a very sort of deep, ancient way, uh, being a parent. Um, so people just kind of chat to you if they don't feel judged. And also, I'm I talking a lot now, and you probably don't believe this, but I, I don't actually, you know, I like to listen to people more than, than talk. And So it's most of the people telling me these stories are, are in different countries, Ireland, English-speaking, Ireland, Canada, um, and different parts of America where um, you know that most people don't go, like uh, you know, North Arkansas, or like you know, in, in the really deep in the woods in in Mississippi or somewhere like that.
0: I think, yeah, I think there are areas of of places where people are naturally storytellers. I feel like Ireland is one of them, um, and I think the American South has that as well, where there's just these amazing stories, and then there's a culture around telling them to each other, that that's something that's really valued.
1: Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, um, absolutely. I think the media, the American media currently portrays Americans as being really polarized. But from my travels around the country, um, I don't see that at all. I see Americans as being actually quite enormous. They're usually risk takers, and they're, they're extraordinarily curious. Uh, as a group, and they, they're very hospitable if they don't feel like a, th- a threat to them. Um, so I feel like, I'm, I love living here. I really like Americans. And, you know, people have a political view, I suppose, based on their experience of, of life. And because some people in this country have such different experiences of life, what they feel is right might differ from, you know, the reality of what's happening. Or, so when I'm in Kentucky, you know, and I, I'm very, very, very politically left, and, uh, but I always like to, to hear other people's opinions and, uh, you know, respecting people comes before, you know, I wouldn't disrespect someone because they think differently, um, you know, unless they're trying to kill me, you know. Well,
0: that would, uh, yeah, I think but, that's worth uh, standing up for yourself in those moments. <laughs> yeah, but,
1: but um, yeah, we have to, you know, uh, but um, so, but, uh, you know, there's, it's almost like it's like we're, we, we've been encouraged to define ourselves as extremists, you know, in one way or another. It's, you know, we can't see the duplicity of, as you said, the doorman, who's a doorman in a building on Fifth Avenue, but he's also a genius at jazz. Um, and I think, you know, it's... Um, I wonder why we're, um, we're, we're monomaniacs in that way. John Berger, the philosopher, said that uh, we're encouraged to define our interests as narrowly as possible because it's easier for companies to market things to us.
0: Oh, I totally believe that.
1: That's interesting,
0: I think it's true. I mean, it's it's sort of like the the terrifying sentence that begins with "I'm the kind of person who dot dot dot," and I always um, I always fight that kind of categorization because I think that I don't really want to commit to a particular "I'm a kind of person who" because I know that it changes, and I think for most people it does. But I, I think that's something I enjoyed in this as well: is that nobody was was you know, hanging on to the, I'm the kind of person who idea and that there are always opportunities to do something different.
1: Yeah. That's, yeah, that's very interesting. We're, you know, at any moment we could we can, we can, we have the power to change. Uh, yeah. I mean, think- that was
0: something you mentioned Buddhism and I, I went once and I did a, a silent retreat for a week and there was something fascinating that happened like, you know, day one, total panic, you know, not quiet at all, silent outwardly, not silent inwardly. (laughs) Oh my God, how long am I going to sit here? What am I doing? This is a terrible idea, blah, blah, blah. You know, but by day three, you kind of have this moment where you're breathing in between moments and then think, oh, you know what? These are all just stories I have been telling up to this point about what kind of person I am. And I, I really don't have to keep subscribing to them if I don't want to. And I always feel like reading fiction is a way to try on other stories mentally and say, well, how would it feel to do this one? And I don't know if it was that way for you writing stories or if you have that experience at all.
1: Well, that's very interesting. I mean, um, as a, a, a t- great tool for writing, of course, is reading. But also the ideas of, of I think, Asian, ideas in Asian philosophy are extremely uh, valuable to the creative writer because... Um, They open you up to new ideas and to new ways of exploring creativity, or at least for me. Um, And uh, so um, um, one of them, of course, I've just forgot what I was going to say. Does that ever happened? Oh, all all the time. All the time. It might be age, too.
0: I don't know. Uh, I mean, I think we're almost exactly the same age, so... (laughs) I can't really speak from before or after that point.
1: Oh, I know what I was going to say. Well, you know, these stories that we talk, that are in this book, That are, I suppose I feel like they're our stories. Because, um, I mean, I've taken this energy of people connecting and I've presented it in a certain way that might make people recognize things about their own lives that they hadn't seen before and therefore feel more fulfillment or a sense of empowerment. But they're really, they, they're not my stories. I mean, all I did was I took, almost like I took water, and I put it into a, a cup that maybe people haven't drunk out of before. But mm. once it's drunk, the story is in you. I mean, it's your story. Um, and so, you know, the cup will change shape depending on the generation. Like one day, my work will seem completely antiquated. But the essence of the story, the characters, and their, their meetings with each other, that will still be going on in, in hundreds of years from now. Um, and that's why, uh, you know, in, in in the past, the stories of Silas Marner, George Eliot that I talked about, you know, they're, they're real. Those things are happening, even um, Wuthering Heights. You know, mm-hmm. Heathcliff and that's happening today. But obviously people are in different clothes and they're driving cars. So, yeah I,
0: th- yeah, yeah, I think that that's something that it always stays. I mean, I think about books that people read over and over and over again and why everybody still reads Pride and Prejudice and still reads Jane Eyre and still reads these books because I think people still have the emotional experience of what's inside of the story.
1: Yes. Yeah, that's exactly it. So the question isn't, you know, how do I write a short story? The question is, what story do I want to tell? Because there's so many in the world when you go out and you talk to people and you've got your own, if you've survived childhood, Virginia said you could write for the rest of your life. So, um, <laughs> True. Um, you know, so there's, it's not, where do I find a story? It's like, what kind of, uh, of story do I want to write and, and why and why this one? But you don't really have to question why because I feel like there's a deeper instinct. To, you know, the story chooses us rather than us choosing the story. And then you develop your own style. You'd shape the cup, as it were, by reading. And then with your own style, you choose. You know, see what I mean? So it's sort of a, um, it's, it's easy to overthink. It's much less complicated, I think then we make it out to be.
0: I think so. I think you sort of know when you've hit on one that's, oh, this is a story I can really build a relationship with, that it's something we can get into a conversation about. So over 10 years, obviously, you didn't just have these few that ended up in the book. How did you decide which ones would end up in the collection? And are there more waiting in the wings that we'll get to read later?
1: Yeah, there are more. Um, there are more, and actually, there are more. There are ghost stories because um, I've been collecting. Uh, I've been collecting those. Oh, how exciting! Uh, yeah, and they're really chilling. I mean, a couple of them. Oh, are I can't so, wait. So, there's nothing like the, there's nothing. The, the ghost stories I've heard from people. There's nothing like like, like I've ever seen explored on television. I mean, these are really, really unique, bizarre experiences. Ooh. But there's also something beautiful about them too. Um, um, So, uh, I mean, I'd love to see a ghost mouse, you know. I haven't seen, I haven't heard of people seeing any ghost animals, and that makes me suspicious because animals are living too, or is it something about the way our brain is structured that allows us to, I don't know, it's, you know, remember that line from Shakespeare's Hamlet, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatia, than can be dreamt of in your philosophies.
0: Yes, absolutely. I think that's true. I mean, I guess maybe, I mean, of course, I want to think about it practically as well. Maybe the way we dismiss a ghost animal as we think it could be a real one, because it's possible that there's something scurrying around and you can't really ask it like, hey, could you come out here and show yourself?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's true. It's true. It's true. It's very interesting. I met an end of year psychiatrist, an end of life, sorry, psychiatrist uh, a few weeks ago at a conference in Santa Barbara. And I said, how do people deal with death? Like because she counsels people who are dying, you know geriatrics, and uh, she said most of the time people handle death the way they handled life. If they panicked in life, they'll panic in death. If they were calm and sort of thoughtful, then they'll be kind and thoughtful in death. If they're aggressive, they'll be aggressive. So she says that's really how people. There's no big change when people are dying, or they learn they're dying. They they handle it the way they handled everything. Isn't that interesting?
0: I think it is. I mean, I think it's. I mean, I think we think that there are going to be, I mean, of course I said earlier that I'm opposed to the, I'm the kind of person who kind of thinking. And at the same time, I think that we also have an unrealistic expectation of how much impact something is going to change. Like now, from now on, I will do this thing completely different. I think these sort of arbitrary distinctions of I always do things or I never do things don't seem to hold up forever. And that Sort of generally leaning in a different direction, often at least for me, feels like a different, a better way to try something new.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. Isn't it? I mean, it's almost as though somebody once said to me, a scientist once said to me, "Ha, oh, Simon, you think you have free will? Ha, oh, ha, ha! What a joke! You're just a tool for nature." And uh, so I think, well then, nature must have a sense of humor because oh, it I wants. Think it
0: absolutely it, must. I mean, look at the platypus. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and it wants to keep it. Yeah, that's right. That's funny. They're very cute. Um, they, uh, they, uh, you know, nature wants to keep us in this state of an, and sort of mild anxiety, or the state of sort of confusion. I mean, if if it hadn't been for, however, early humans discovered fire, then we'd still be eating like steak tartare and sushi every day. You know, um, which isn't but, a bad choice. But I, no, no that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I mean. I think of the bacteria. I mean, I think oh, of the well, parasites. Yes, of Caroline, the parasites. I know, um, it's horrifying. You're right. Um, but, uh, I mean, there was a time, anthropologists tell us, that humans didn't know that sexual intercourse led to conception. Because it doesn't happen immediately. I mean, it doesn't happen No, overnight. there's a
0: delay. There's quite a <laughs> significant <would> be, delay.
1: <laughs> college would be very different. Um, if, uh, you know, dorms would have to be expanded. Um, but... Uh, yeah, there's a delay, So, but at some point humans figured out. Can you imagine that conversation? Terry was with Linda in the cave, and then now look, you know, she's having, you know, so they must And that have,
0: baby rather looks like Terry.
1: Yeah, but what's, that's interesting you say that because, you know, what we're told is that men didn't realize they had an actual biological link to children. That is fascinating. Because they didn't know that sad, sex led to to conception. And scientists tell us that they probably figured it out about the same time that they figured out that every living thing, plant, you know, contains the seeds of its own regeneration, just like we do.
0: It's so amazing to think of what it would be like not knowing that.
1: Yeah. And I feel like, I feel like men are not as, they're not as, uh, you know, they don't hold each other accountable as for, for the parenting as much as women do. Like for instance, If a man says, you know, I I can't go, I can't play squash this weekend, Terry, because I'm seeing my child, you know, the friend will say, oh, that's nice, you know, have a good time. But If a woman said, you know, I can't play squash this weekend, Terry, because I'm seeing my daughter, the person, the automatic response is, wow, what did you do wrong? Like, why do you only see, you know, it's like women and men. Yeah, why are you only
0: only seeing her at the weekend?
1: (laughs) Yeah, so there's different standards. And I think that that's evening out, though, thankfully. But I wonder if it goes back to that uh, ancient past where, Men just didn't realize that they had any link to the child, apart from a social. I, I world. don't
0: know, but I think that's an amazing question. I think all of these things that you've brought up could possibly spin off into entire books.
1: <laughs> I mean, how do you <laughs> that I you mean, and I would read, it, Caroline? I know, <laughs> I know we would read them.
0: But uh, this is the thing that I always think when people are thinking about things like this all of the time is how do you decide? And I could talk to you all day, but I will. I think I will wrap it on this question, which is how do you decide which ones get to become stories in books when you're thinking about these ideas all the time? Because I think all of them could be, and all of them could be quite good.
1: Oh, thanks. That's a very, that's a very um, interesting question. Um, it's really just, uh, I don't really think about it too much. It's the ones that sort of present themselves to me. I mean, I don't, I, I choose what to write as, as with the same freedom and, and power that I choose what to dream meaning that, like, stories I really don't choose. I mean, there's stories which beg me almost, you know, not literally, but they, they, they're almost, they compel me to, um, to write them. And, um, and I feel like there's different kinds of writing. You know, not all writing has to be the same. You know, the variation is lovely, like with foods. For instance, so some, some stories are, would be good for escapism, for somebody like wishing to like leave their life and disappear into a different world, but these stories are not like that. I do like escapist writing in some contexts, but um this this uh, this um these stories are intended as tools to go deeper into your own life um so they they 're hard i mean they 're like health food they don 't taste good <laughs> they don 't they don't taste good sometimes um, and uh, and of course yes they 're gluten free but um Thank God. Thank God. <laughs> um, so so these stories are intended for the reader who wants to go deeper, definitely not the reader who wants to escape. And and um, you know, and I, I didn't intend that when I wrote them, but I think that um, that's what of looking at them as a whole, I've realized, well that's what I prefer in life too. I don't mind a bit of discomfort if if I if I learn something. Because luxury is boring, and I think that a lot of people after they've made a lot of money and they've lived in that kind of luxury, they realise, Jesus, I'm miserable. I just want a bike and, you know, and, and a hat and a and a, a bottle of water and I just want the freedom and simplicity and so these stories are really about finding simplicity spiritually and um, and emotionally.
0: Absolutely. Well, I hope that everybody loves them as much as I did. Oh, thank you so
1: much. Yes, yes, let's
0: hope. That they snap (laughs) it up (laughs) with great gusto. um, And I so look forward to the ghost stories. You must come back and talk to us about the ghost stories when
1: they're
0: they're out. But thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Oh, thank you so
1: much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Caroline.
0: Thank you for listening to The Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.